Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13. As we continue to make our way through this last oracle, this final prophecy of Zechariah, we've been noticing God's gracious dealings with us. God, the Holy Spirit, we've been recently reminded, gives us the grace of grief. The grace of tears, of grief over our sins, conviction for the transgressions of God's law that we've committed. These are the blessings of God. I know they don't necessarily feel sometimes like blessings, but they are because, as we know from Scripture, godly grief leads to repentance without regret. So it is a most definite blessing when the Holy Spirit convicts us and causes us to mourn for our sins. God the Spirit drives us to God the Father and to God the Son. Then, as we saw last time here in chapter 13, God graciously opens the fountain of cleansing from sin and uncleanness, washes all our sins away. That fountain is, of course, the fountain of blood and water that flowed from Jesus' side on the cross. As we sang in Cooper's hymn together, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Praise be to God. Now, as we continue in this series, which has been, have you noticed, perfectly providentially timed for this Lenten season, we come to a text also fitted in God's perfect plan for this very holiday. We didn't have to go far, did we, for Palm Sunday? It's a passage, not of Zechariah 9, verse 9, by the way, that prophesies the Lord's entrance into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. We considered that several weeks ago. But there is another prophecy here in Zechariah, suited for this holy week in which we are entering. It is the one that Jesus applied to his own passion, that is to his own suffering that came upon him in earnest on the night on which he was betrayed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we pick up the word and we read things and, uh, and hardly do we understand them because they're so full of depth and mystery and wonder. We wouldn't have it any other way, but... But we pray, O oh God, that you will help us to understand enough and enter enough by thy Holy Spirit's work in our hearts that we may be filled with wonder, love, and praise again. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Zechariah 13. We'll pick up at verse 7. Just read a few verses. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. It was on a Thursday afternoon when Jerusalem was 
buzzing with the typical commotion associated with Passover, the Jewish celebration, the annual celebration, laden as it was with religious and nationalistic fervor, not to mention the throng of people who had descended upon her for this celebration, causing the city to swell several times beyond her normal capacity, that Jesus sent his disciples ahead of him to prepare a room for their annual celebration of the Passover meal. This particular Passover was especially charged by the fact that just a few days earlier, their master had had been ushered into the city by cheering and palm-waving crowds, crying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Followed by a flurry of both fury as Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple and the truest friendliness as Jesus healed many blind and lame who came to him in the temple. All of which events, of course, met unsurprisingly with the indignant anger of the chief priests and the scribes now burning hotter than ever. I can't imagine, can you, that the disciples did have at least, didn't have at least some sense of unease about all of this as these events unfolded this Passover. Their rabbi, Jesus, had been talking more and more about how he was going to die. And then something again about rising again in three days. And, and even Jesus' demeanor has changed a bit. He's, he seems more determined, more directed than ever to be in Jerusalem at this time. Not to mention the fact that he somehow seemed also sadder. Then there was that strange thing about following a man carrying some water to a house and the cryptic message that they were given to carry to him. The teacher says, my time is at hand. Had Jesus prearranged for this meeting, this upper room fellow carrying the water to follow him to the... Or or was it another miracle? We can't tell. Maybe the disciples couldn't tell. Then the bombshell is they're reclining around the table in that upper room, Jesus and the twelve, and right in the middle of the meal, Jesus says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Judas gets up and, and leaves. The disciples look at each other. Where's, where's Judas going? What's... They had to wonder to themselves about all of this. Things get even stranger when Jesus alters, adds words to the celebration of the Passover that they've got memorized because they've been hearing the words since they were little children repeated over and over. And Jesus says, this is my body which is given for you. What did he just say? This is my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What does he mean? What, what can he mean? And then really sent their heads spinning with this. I will not drink again of this cup or of this until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. At least the hymn was a familiar one. 
those psalms that they sang at the Passover called the Hallel Psalms, uh, 113 through 118, that they were accustomed to singing together again from their youth. They had them memorized. They didn't need hymn books, uh, psalters. They, they knew these by heart. But did they notice, did they notice how Jesus' voice cracked a little bit when he sang those words? He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. In Psalm 113, did it seem like there was a hitch in his voice when Jesus sang, the snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me, I suffered distress and anguish? In 116, did he sing those words a little more enthusiastic, a little louder maybe than usual in Psalm 118? Out of my distress I called to the Lord. That Passover night. Off to the Mount of Olives they went to that familiar place where they had apparently met before and enjoyed many meetings together in the past. But then another bombshell. You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Ah, this much they understood. This much they understood clearly by shepherd he meant himself and by fleeing sheep he means us. They got the message loud and clear because Peter replied, bursted out in his characteristic bluster back to the Lord, though they all fall away, pointing to the other disciples. I will not deny you. I called it bluster. I'm sure he meant it, uh, every word of it at the time. Of course, it didn't take long for Peter's resolve to dissolve into a series of cowardly denials. Denials that he even knew Jesus, much less was a follower of his. That time of intense prayer, after that intense prayer time on Jesus' part, wrestling with his father over the cup that was coming to him, sweating great drops of blood in the process, while his disciples dozed, enters Judas, again, with a great crowd, toting torches, armed with swords and clubs, with a kiss, Jesus is betrayed, and true to the prophecy, says Matthew in his gospel, all the disciples left and fled. Yesterday on my way to Presbytery, to the Presbytery meeting, I listened to Lamplight Theater's dramatic enactment of the entire Thursday evening with great interest, and I was especially struck by the jibes they acted out of the armed temple officials asking one another as they're binding Jesus to take him from the garden, hey, should we round up the followers too? And the others laughing, who could possibly catch them? Look at how fast they're running! Zechariah's prophecy came true. The shepherd was struck and the sheep scattered. But when we go back to Zechariah and look more closely, we're reminded that the events leading up to and including Jesus' death are as filled with paradox and mystery as the events of his birth. Yes, the shepherd is struck. But by whom? 
planned this? Who executed this? The sheep are scattered, but is that the end of the story? Lots of questions pop up. I want to look at just three of what I'm calling loosely paradoxes that surround this striking and scattering. First, notice with me that the striking of the shepherd is both divinely predestined and humanly premeditated. Divinely predestined, humanly premeditated. Now, the latter of those two, the idea that the striking of the shepherd, Jesus, was humanly premeditated is perfectly clear. Hardly needs any demonstration from the gospel accounts. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, sometime before the Thursday evening events, had gone with the chief, to the chief priests and cut the deal. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And 30, prices, 30 pieces of silver, they agreed, was the price to hand Jesus over to them. Also prophesied, by the way, you might remember, in this same prophet, Zechariah. From that moment, Judas sought that opportunity to betray him. And of course, the Jewish leaders had long been looking for a chance to kill Jesus. Only their plans had been foiled time after time after time. Until now, the striking of the shepherd was humanly premeditated and humanly executed. You know the story. Judas, the soldiers, the priests, the Romans, Pilate, Herod, governor, king, priests, and people. They all had a hand in striking the shepherd, the good shepherd. This is why when Peter preached at Pentecost, remember that sermon in the book of Acts? In Acts chapter 2, he could say to the people, you crucified him. You put him to death by the hands of lawless men. This is why they were cut to the heart. They did this. Human beings had struck the shepherd. And not to put too fine a point on it. You struck the shepherd. You and I struck the shepherd. Our sins are what he suffered for. It was all premeditated by humans, by scheming, plotting human beings who got together behind closed doors, made a transaction, laid purely human plans to orchestrate this killing. And yet, Jesus says, even as these events are unfolding, all of them took place not only by human plotting and premeditation, but also according to divine plan. For it is Written, Jesus says, knowing and having read the prophet Zechariah from his earliest days as a youth, hearing them at the, at the table in family worship. It is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. All of this was divinely predestined. Peter says the same thing in that same sermon on Pentecost. I just mentioned that Jesus was delivered up, he says, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Yes, humanly premeditated, but no less, therefore, also divinely predestined. The moment that Jesus' disciples went scurrying like cockroaches into the darkness in fear into the shadows of the Garden of Gethsemane had been planned and predestined by God himself. Dear flock, our responsibility for striking Jesus is ours, and it is fully ours. Unmitigated fault 
culpability is ours. We cannot point the finger at others. We have no one to blame but ourselves. Like the hearer of Peter's Pentecost sermon, we must be cut to the heart. And if he hasn't yet, may God cut us to the heart by his spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. It was, as we sing sometimes, it was my sin that held him there. That's what you've said and sung. Yet amazingly and wonderfully and mysteriously and graciously, this was God's plan. And it had always been God's plan, his eternal plan. It was God's will that Christ be slain so that you be cleansed. This has been his eternal, everlasting plan without beginning, without end. This was agreed upon by God the Father and God the Son from eternity past. Praise be to God, your salvation and mine in this way, that God the Son would willingly become a man to be struck. It was not God's plan B. It had always been God's plan A. Now there's a lot of mystery there. I'll confess that, of course, but that only increases our wonder and our praise. Our Savior died by human premeditation 100%, and he died by sovereign uh, divine predestination 100%. And that's why this event has been called the striking of the shepherd, both the worst deed and the greatest deed that ever happened. Another paradox, a second one, rises when we consider who is doing the striking and who is being struck. Look closely at verse 7 with me again. We find that God, God is the one striking the shepherd. The Lord, the Lord is the one who's rousing the sword and commanding it to strike the shepherd. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, declares who? The Lord of hosts. But who is the shepherd who's being struck? Verse 7, the man who stands next to me. There it was, those hundreds of years, sitting right before them in the scripture, and yet a mystery until it was uncovered in, in the incarnation, until that is God became that man by taking human flesh. The man who stands next to me is the God-man. It's Jesus Christ. It's God, the Son. Now, I'm not pulling this out of the air. We know that because Jesus himself refers to himself as the good shepherd in John 10 and, and explains the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Why did it have to be this way? Why did God have to become a man and be born in a manger and, and, and real humanity taken to himself and in that way become our savior? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us that he partook of our flesh and blood in order to destroy the one who has power over death. 
He had to be made like his brothers, this is Hebrews, in every respect so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And you know what that means. In order to satisfy the wrath of God. That's propitiation. That's what the Bible means by propitiation. To satisfy God's wrath. It had to be this way. The 11th century Anselm of Canterbury, who, uh, by the way, is featured in our latest uh, church directory, wrote in his classic, Why God Became Man, about the atoning death of Jesus this way. It could not have been done unless man paid what was owing to God for sin. But the debt was so great that while man alone owned it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both man and God. Thus it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person so that he who in his own nature ought to pay and could not should be in person be in a person who could. Or to put it more simply, uh, this. As man, Christ paid the debt of men. And as God, he had the means with which to do it. And what a debt it was. You measure the debt by the punishment. What was aroused? A rod? Oh no. You give spankings with rods. A sword. A sword which is never for spanking. Always for slaying. In the hands of the proper authorities, the sword is for judicial purpose, for justly applying and inflicting the punishment of death. So what we have here, folks, my friends, dear flock, is God slaying God. God slaying God. We have God the Father rousing the sword, raising it up and causing it to fall with fatal effect on God the Son at the cross. Precisely agreed upon, as we've said, from all eternity between Father and Son, the justice due to you, the justice due to me, from all eternity agreed upon would fall on Jesus But what is this? God the Father calls for the sword to inflict that punishment, our punishment, on God the Son. What can we say? How can we penetrate this? How can we possibly enter into this? All we could do is agree with Charles Wesley. Tis mystery. Tis Mystery all. The immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? Tis mercy all. Let earth adore. Let angel minds inquire no more. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die? Die. 
me. But the depth of the mystery is this. That a, that a schism like this should be made between persons of the Godhead? Between the perfectly unified, triune, inseparable God should be riven this way in pursuit of the solution? One commentator points out how costly this shows that our sin is. How we measure our, the terrible price of our sin is horror. The enormity of it when we realize that there is nothing in the whole compass of human knowledge, nothing more awfully sublime than this seeming schism within the Godhead. It's as if sin was so dreadful and evil that the assumption of its guilt by a sinless mediator must for a time make a division even in the absolute unity of the Godhead. It is the most awful illustration of the repulsive and separating power of sin that the history of the universe affords. Years ago, R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, put it in a most shocking but true way when he considered those words of Jesus in the pulpit before his congregation. Remember those words? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And realized and explained to his congregation that what that means, what happened, is that he was damned. Jesus was damned at the cross. And then went on so strikingly but truly to say that God the Father at that moment said to God the Son, God damn you. That's what happened on the cross. My brothers and sisters, we measure our sin in the amazing depth of God's grace only when we see God the Father damning God the Son on the cross in our place. Causing his judicial sort of punishment to fall on the Son who, have we said it before, we'll say it again, went willing there, willingly there, even if it was with sweat laced in blood dropping from his brow in the garden at just the prospect of what was coming upon him. And prayers, please, Father, let me be released from this. Is there some way out of this? Is there some different way? Anything, anything, Father, but this. Yet not my will, but yours be done. The Son obeyed the Father, even to death, even the death under damnation and wrath in our place, so that we may never suffer it ourselves. Yet a third paradox, or maybe it's really more of a surprise than a paradox, but something remarkable and unexpected is that while 
the striking of the shepherd scatters the sheep, it also gathers them. Strike the shepherd and the sheep are gathered. Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now this lifting up Jesus talks about, of course, it can refer to his exaltation, but it certainly refers in John 12, Jesus makes it clear to the kind of death he was going to die. It's true when Jesus was first struck. It sent the sheep scattering and coward for cowardly cover. They scattered, they abandoned him. That's, the, that's what the language is meant to convey. They trembled in private hiding or even denied him in public in plain view. But, but now, now he's gathering his sheep. Even the ones who are far, far off. Even the ones who are way off, say, in, in Owensboro, Kentucky. Way, way off from Jerusalem. He's gathering them into one flock with one shepherd. This too we see in Zechariah's prophecy. Now there are many false sheep apparently who are driven forever away. The last third who are put through the fires of affliction. Don't miss that detail. Like gold that is being refined. That sounds painful. And some of you have more recent and direct experience of that furnace than others of us here. I say those true sheep, verse 9, call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, hear God's voice. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Which is what you've been saying all morning. Today and every day more and more people, more before we go to bed tonight than when we woke up this morning, are coming to say, the Lord is my God. And to hear him say to them, they are my people, you are my people. God is gathering his people to himself from the, every point of the compass right now. 150 of them in Mauritania. They too. And more and more. Every day this kingdom is growing and he is filling from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people his sheep pen. This too has been the will of the Father for the Son. Remember the Father tells the Son, I give them to you and you will not lose any of them that I've given to you. And he says, I will not lose any of them that you give to me. Isn't it grand to know what could I thrill you more with this morning? What could I tell you that would cause your hearts to skip within you? To make it beat faster in your chest? What could I tell you this morning that would cause you to leave this sanctuary walking on air? That, that there's a million dollars waiting for you in the narthex? Or, or that you're... Your best life, whatever is now. I don't. What, what can I tell you to cause you to float on air? What could I possibly say to you better than this? That the Lord says, "You are mine. You are mine. I am your God. You are my people. What wondrous love is this!" Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. 
I couldn't tell you anything better than that. How has he done it? By his love. By the love that was willing to take the sword of his own justice, his own wrath, and to strike his shepherd with the fervor of a lover, strike his own willing son to rescue you from your destruction, to spare the sword from you. He falls on his son. The late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse of Bible study hour fame from the golden days of radio spoke of the love of God that shines through the darkness of the cross just this way. He will give man the trees of the forest and the iron in the ground. Then he will give to man the brains to make an axe from the iron to cut down the tree and fashion a cross. He will give man the ability to make a hammer and nails. And when man has the cross and the hammer and the nails, the Lord will allow man to take hold of him and bring him to that cross. He will stretch out his hands upon it and allow man to nail him to that cross. And in so doing, take the sins of man upon himself And make it possible for those who have despised and rejected him to come to him. And to know the sins, the joy of sins removed and forgiven. To know the assurance of pardon and the eternal life. And to enter into the prospect of the hope of glory with him forever. This is even our God, and there is none like unto him. Amen.